Well, we pick up again uh, in First Thessalonians. We've been going through this book for a good chunk of the summer. There's a letter Paul wrote to a church that he helped start, but had to leave pretty quickly. The story is in Acts 17. Uh, and then, as he recounts in the letter here, uh, he was able to send Timothy back to encourage them, and so he's following up Timothy's visit, uh, trying to encourage this church. And uh, I, I hope you found it fruitful. We are almost to the end. We'll, next week will be our last sermon in this series, and then we'll be going back to Genesis. We had started Genesis and did the early chapters of it last fall. We're going to cover the life of Abraham this fall, um, just so you know where we're going. But, uh, but this week and next, we'll be finishing up First Thessalonians. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. For you are not, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray that he would uh, teach us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we can rely on your word for all that we need in life and godliness. And yet your word is only effective when your spirit is at work in and through it. So, leaning on your word, Lord, would you send your spirit to work in us, that we might understand more of our hope, our salvation through Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. One of, the, uh, one of the great turnaround moments in the office is in late in season three when Roy comes to confront Jim and attacks him. And, you know, if you don't know the Jim and Pam backstory, I, I don't have time for all that. But of course, as Roy is, is rushing at Jim, from the side of the camera, you see this hand come out with pepper spray, and it's Dwight who saves Jim. He, he sprays, you know, Roy right in the face, but of course they're in an office space, so everybody is affected. You know, everybody is, uh, you know, is, is grabbing their eyes as their eyes are burning, and, uh, but lo and behold, Dwight has saved Jim, and, and Dwight, they cut to Dwight talking to the camera, and he says, 
Every day for eight years, I brought pepper spray into this office to protect myself and my fellow employees. And every day for eight years, people have laughed at me. Well, who's laughing now? Of course, his eyes are just red and tears are streaming down his face. Uh, they, they later show that Dwight has uh, nunchucks and throwing stars hidden under his desk. I think later in the series, I didn't check up on this. There's, there's another episode where they find all these weapons that Dwight has hidden around the office. Dwight imagines himself as this guy who's prepared for, you know, some kind of impending conflict that inevitably will arrive at the office. And it turns out it's a guy upset about a breakup that um, is his great moment of glory. And I think when we read passages like this about the end that's coming, and we hear about being prepared, we sort of imagine that we're supposed to be the kind of people that have a go bag ready for when it goes down. Uh, That we're supposed to be armed, (laughs) symbolically, but maybe some of us perhaps even physically, uh, literally think that is what we're being told. This isn't a commentary on gun control. But The Bible, when it tells us to take the end times seriously, one of the things that that comes into focus is not the conflict outside. You understand this? Not the conflict outside, but what is going on in us? What will happen to you and me? I mean, I recognize there are other, there are sometimes, uh, There have been some ideas in the church about some impending conflict, but you can see here that Paul talks about it primarily in terms of what will happen to us. Not some external conflict, but us. So as we're, that we will be changed. This is actually where Paul left off. If you were here last week or heard the sermon last week, Paul was talking about our hope, that we shouldn't grieve as those without hope. And he talked about looking backward to the work on the, of the cross and the resurrection and looking forward to the return of Christ. And that's where he's picking up. He's talking about how we're being changed. And so even when he's reminding us of the day of the Lord, this is, a, this is meant to help us understand the change we are waiting for. And he tells us that we need two things. We need to be awake and we need to be armed. <laughs> Though armed in a different way than you might think. Awake and armed. That's what, that's what it looks like to wait to be changed. So first, there's being awake. Uh, as, we just, as I just mentioned, Paul's been talking about the change that will come. And so he's building on that when he says, uh, look, you don't have to be warned about times and seasons. You don't need to know the exact date and time. In fact, in a passage that Paul already alluded to last week, and that he will continue to go back this week. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, you're not going to know when this will happen. God's not giving you a calendar and circling the date. That's not going to be there. Anybody who tells you otherwise is not listening to Jesus. Instead, Paul builds on this idea of the, the day of the Lord. uh, That's what he brings up in verse 2, right? The day of the Lord. And this is an idea that runs through a lot of the prophets. I mean, I 
could rattle off a whole host of different references. One of the most well-known places, at least in terms of how the New Testament uses it, is Joel 2. You could look it up if you want to later today. But this idea of the day of the Lord is primarily, it's, it's, it's the last day, at least in terms of how things run now. It's the last day. But when, when it's referred to as the day of the Lord, the emphasis is primarily on judgment. There are other ways in which the end is talked about which, which emphasize God's salvation and redemption. Typically, the, the main note that is struck when it's talking about the day of the Lord is judgment. That's important. Because that's why Paul then refers to it as a thief in the night. Jesus' return as someone like a thief in the night. Now again, Paul's not making this up. Back in Matthew 24, when, which is this important passage, it has parallels in Mark and Luke. We looked at the one in Mark uh, back in the spring. But uh, it is this moment where Jesus talks about the end, and he's kind of talking in this apocalyptic language, which <laughs> when we talked about it from Mark is very confusing in a lot of ways. But you always know the takeaway from it. And Jesus had said he was going to return on the cloud of glory, but he was coming in Matthew 24, 43, like a thief in the night. So again, almost certainly Paul has this sermon Jesus gave in mind here. He is coming back like a thief, which is a very unsettling metaphor. I think intentionally so, right? But it's, a, it's an unsettling metaphor because... That's the whole point, right? A thief doesn't show up when he thinks people might be expecting it or on guard, but when he thinks people have let their guard down. It is a symbol of judgment. In fact, that is what the return of the Lord will be, right? If you are not in Jesus, that's what it will be. And this is what he describes it as, people saying there is peace and security. In other words, this is experience of Jesus' return like a thief. It will be experienced that way as a thief if you are confident in your own peace and security. There's lots of ways in which we, can th- we think about it this way, but that's the experience, right? If, if, you're, if you're saying to yourself, I'm doing well. My life is peaceful, I'm secure, I've got it figured out, watch out. Instead, Jesus says, and this was the primary thing in Matthew 24, to stay awake, which is exactly what Paul tells us. Stay awake. Stay awake, stay watchful. Now then he he shifts his metaphor a little bit here. (laughs) This is kind of funny. Uh, In verse... He says, but you are not in darkness. He goes on in verse 5 to say, you are children of light. So you're not from the darkness. And then he shifts back. He says, so then, in verse 6, let us not sleep, but let us keep awake and be sober. So he, he, Paul shifts the metaphor for a moment to talk about who we really are, right, as those who are brought into the light. Of course, that language of light and darkness is all over Scripture. It was in our assurance of pardon this morning, right, that we have been uh, called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, Paul uses this elsewhere in 
Colossians 1. He talks about how we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So that, that imagery of being changed, being brought out of darkness and into light, is, kind of runs throughout the New Testament, but in particular because light is always associated with God's glory and his character. He dwells in unapproachable light, James says. So this idea that God is holy and he makes us holy, is bringing us into his holiness, is hugely important throughout the whole of the New Testament. And so too, Paul is saying then, so then if you've been brought into holiness, act as those who are waiting for the light to be revealed. And so the contrast stands out, right? If, if you think that things are going well, that you're secure on your own, you'll sleep. Or you'll party and pass out. But if you don't think that things are good on your own, that there's something else, then we live expectantly. We stay awake. We stay attentive. That means then that at the heart of what our lives are called to be is a kind of, there is some kind of dissatisfaction you get what I'm saying? Dissatisfaction with the way it is, with what I bring to the table, with the way that the world is. Recognizing that there's something better to come. In fact, I think then one of the great problems we have in American Christianity often is we're not dissatisfied enough. I mean, there's plenty of people dissatisfied in churches in, in, in America. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't plenty of those, right? But we're often dissatisfied about all the wrong things, right? The programming isn't enough. The, you know, I'm not, I'm not given all the things I need to, to do this or that. Whatever it may be, I dislike how the pastor dresses. I don't know. Whatever it may be, we're dissatisfied about all these really shallow things, Oh, by the way, things that we think would make us secure and peaceful right now. Instead of being dissatisfied with what we bring to the table and looking for God to provide. We're far too easily pleased, as Lewis put it. And we are looking for churches to meet those kinds of needs, rather than as a place for staying awake for the Lord's return. See, this is why we misunderstand the judgment language often, is we think that judgment day means God is going to show up and based on our merits, decide who's been good and who's been bad. Right? I mean, that's the typical view. And, and truth be told, for much, many religious traditions, and even many within the church, basically think of Judgment Day that way. That God's going to show up, and based on the merits of what you've done, figure out who's been good and who's been bad. 
But all of that, any way in which we approach God on our own merits is a way of trying to create our own peace and security. The whole of the Bible is screaming at us that it doesn't work. It doesn't work for a lot of reasons, right? One of them is because we, we're simply comparing ourselves to others. And it only takes a moment to stop and think about if God is really who we say God is, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, God infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness, power, justice, strength, I forget all the rest of it. Um, if we say that God is all those things, how impressed do we really think God is going to be that I'm a little better than my neighbor? I mean, if we just stop and consider that, we've got to be a little nervous that he's not going to be that impressed. And more to the point, and this is more significant, that the Bible teaches us over and over and over again that the heart of sin is not merely about what you can quantify, measure, about how you affect other people, but it's about the very effort to make ourselves independent of God. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden. This goes back to Genesis 3. This is the very heart of what sin is, is trying to make ourselves good without God. But that, of course, is the way that many of us are thinking about it. It's certainly the way many think about it now. I actually have a friend, he was the humanist chaplain at Harvard while I was there, uh, who wrote a book called Good Without God. Uh, and the whole point uh, this is what he says. He says, we must become superintendents of our own lives, right? We're not looking for any external, uh, any external approval. We've got to be superintendents of our own lives. It is above all an affirmation, his humanism is, uh, of the greatest common value we human beings have, the desire to live with dignity, the desire to be good. Now, I mean... I, would say, I will tell you that my, my friend Greg probably puts more effort into thinking about how do I do good things than I ever have. In, in, that, in that front, okay. That's admirable. However, it misses the point. Not that I shouldn't think more about that, I probably should but that this whole way of thinking in terms of what are the measurable, tangible results misses the point of what it means to be good. And we do spend our whole lives trying to be a good person, right? Whether that's fitting into contemporary standards, whether that's thinking about what is the you know, net gain in the world from my actions, whether that is a religious version where we're simply saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the rules. I'm doing all these things. It is inescapable that what we are trying to do is prove that we are worthwhile. Trying to prove that we are good people. And this is why we are threatened, and our society is awash in this, why we are threatened with people who don't see it the same way we do. Not because 
you know, there isn't, you know, who knows, maybe there's no right or wrong. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is when we are trying to prove that we are good people, the fact that other people have a different standard is a threat to our security. Because maybe I'm wrong. And then what hope do I have, right? That's why I can't stand, why you can't stand, why we can't stand when there's somebody else who has a different view. And we get so upset about it because we're trying to prove that we are worthwhile. And it's a threat that other people might not think that's even the right standard. And look, maybe it's not overtly moral, but we all are doing this, right? Maybe you're not so focused on the moral categories, but you want to be the kind of person that's liked. I mean, there's always pressure to be popular. I mean, that's been around, I think, as long as there's been people, right? But there's, there's pressure to, to do that. But, uh, of course, it doesn't really change as you grow up. I mean, you, it's framed that way when you're young, right? But we still care about looking good, being a person that has a good sense of humor, who has the right opinions, right? Of course, social media uh, makes all this worse. I'm not saying it's altogether bad. I like, I like following like, meme accounts, you know, but this is, this, is the wor- this is the sinister side of it, isn't it? Is that we're hunting for likes, right? We're virtue signaling to prove that we're on the right side of whatever issue it is. Again, that can be on the right or the left or whatever sort of issue, what we, are, we want to be the kind of person that's liked, and that is a different way of trying to convince ourselves that we have peace and security. But it's the same thing, isn't it? Trying to prove that you're a worthwhile person. A, a different variation on that, but one that I think is very subtle and certainly very pervasive in the church, is to be the kind of person that is needed. And I see a lot of people... I have seen in the, over the years, people who are sort of positioning themselves as the person who's needed. This is a great temptation as a parent, those of you who are parents, to be somebody who's needed. You want to be someone who's useful. But so often we are really doing it to convince ourselves that our lives are worthwhile. I haven't thrown it all away which is another way of saying we're doing that for peace and security. And of course, when we talk about it this way, it starts to become clear how threadbare all of our strategies are. How really hollow they are. And that with much scrutiny, they don't bear up. But that's the good news. Well, that's the bad news, but the good news shows up at that moment as we start to realize it. Because the good news is that having a meaningful life is not a thing that is earned, but a thing that is given. If you think that you, that you, are try, that you have to create a life that is peaceful and secure on your own, then when God shows up, and unmask that for how flimsy it really is, it will be like having a thief steal everything away from you. But when God shows up and shows 
how powerful the work of Jesus is. And that's where we're putting our security. It's a different thing. The return of the Lord is not a day of judgment, but a day of salvation. The good news is that Jesus has offered his life in our place so that our peace and security is not in what we have done, not what we accomplished, but what he's done. Our peace and security is in his goodness, the approval of all that he has accomplished. It is about needing the gift that he gives, not proving that we have lived a worthwhile life. Being awake means knowing that you needed peace and security from somewhere else in the first place. And in the end, we will still need God to show up to give what he has promised. And that is our hope. And that's why we stay awake. And that is why the church has prayed over the millennia Come, Jesus, come. Because that is our hope. Is that we would continue to receive, we would receive in fullness all that he is giving. That is why it's a day of hope. But again, there, there is that warning, right? If, we, if our peace and security is in what we've done, then to have that unmasked will be a terrible experience. So we're, we need to be awake, but we also need to be armed. Here, Paul switches again his metaphor in verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and hope, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul starts talking here about the armor of God. Now, some of you already know this. In Ephesians 6, Paul does a much more expanded version of this. Putting on the armor of God, he talks at length about this kind of metaphor. But he also coordinates the pieces a little differently, which is kind of fascinating. But here he describes the breastplate, right, that covers our vital organs <laughs> as faith and love. And the helmet, covering another vital organ, our hope. Notice that triad again, faith, hope, and love. We saw it at the very beginning of the book. Paul brought it up. Paul brings it up in any number of places along the way uh, in his other letters. But here at the beginning and near the end, Paul has brought up faith, hope, and love. And as we talked about at the very beginning of this series, faith, hope, and love are kind of the foundational elements in any remotely healthy Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. And what's interesting about this particular version of the armor of God is that then it, when we start to see that, we start to realize it's focused on our hearts, on what's going on in us. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about warfare, spiritual warfare in terms of Satan and demonic forces. Here he's talking about what's going on in us. And that's why the encouragement, that, or encouragement is so key to this whole battle. It's the takeaway at the end, right? Encourage one another. Now, I keep saying this over and over again. Paul keeps saying the word encourage. 
perikaleo in Greek, calling out alongside somebody is kind of what it means literally. Encouraging one another. He keeps using that verb over and over and over again in this. And it seems to be the whole point of the letter is to encourage you. That's why it's, a, it's an essential part of this kind of spiritual warfare because that is warfare that has to do with our hearts. We need encouragement. We need a reminder, as he says in verse 9 and 10, that we, have been, uh, we are not destined for wrath but have obtained salvation through Christ. More than that, even specifically, he talks about Jesus' death. So this is the encouragement that you need. The encouragement that I need is that we are not destined for wrath. Our experience of Jesus' return will not be as a thief. If we are in Jesus, we will not lose anything. We gain everything. And in fact, we are awaiting the full realization of all that he's giving. So the encouragement you need is to remember that you have been saved from judgment for sin. That you have been saved from the power of sin. That you've been saved from the wages of sin. And you have been saved to righteousness and goodness and the power of the Spirit and life in God. That's what you're saved for. Life in God. And all of this brings then the idea of spiritual warfare into clearer focus. Because that language gets thrown around a lot in the church. It has over, for over 2,000 years, it gets thrown around certainly in a lot of evangelical congregations, and it's often very vague. And, uh, and we use the metaphor without explaining how the metaphor works. And so the metaphor takes on a life of its own. <laughs> and people start thinking in terms of how they understand warfare rather than how God changes warfare. Of course, spiritual warfare begins at the fall, or well, really before the fall, right? <laughs> uh, Satan's already around, has already rebelled against God by the time we meet him in Genesis 3. But spiritual warfare is never really a question of God's power. This is important to remember. Whenever God meets his enemies power for power, it's pretty quick work. It's a pretty clean operation, and everything is mopped up pretty quickly. I mean, a good illustration of this is if you go to the actual passage about Armageddon in Revelation 16. Uh, I'm going I'm to read you a little bit. It's a section where there's a poor, it's described as this kind of cycle of visions that John has is described as a bunch of bowl, bowls being poured out, seven of them, right? And you get to the sixth bowl, and that's poured out, and the armies are assembling, and then there is a brief Interjection, a warning, and tell me if this sounds familiar. In verse 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. That's the warning. Then it picks back up, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the armies are assembling, right? The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Then God shows up in his glory. There's nothing heard about these armies ever again. <laughs> like, 
In other words, whenever there's this idea that shows up of God meeting power for power with his spiritual enemies, it is always quick work, but it misses the point. That's what we kind of get obsessed with, I think, often enough in the church, is God's power and wielding God's power, but it misses that the turning point in spiritual warfare was not when God showed up in power, but when he showed up in weakness. The showdown, the defining showdown in all this long war is the cross. It is the point at which Jesus achieves his victory. It is his coronation day. The cross and the resurrection are the place where Jesus has broken the power of sin and death. Because it is the moment where God decides, well, he decided, I suppose, in eternity past, but it is the moment where he follows through on what he decided, to be more theologically accurate, that he is going not only to win, but to bring many out of darkness and into light. If God were only concerned with winning, it would have been solved long ago. But that is not his concern. Because the warfare that God is waging is about bringing his enemies into his own camp. What God is concerned with is delivering us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. The turning point in warfare is the cross. And that, see, all that changes then the way we understand what it means to be armed for this kind of conflict. It means we, just, we recognize that our enemy, again, in Ephesians 6, it's Satan and the de- demonic forces. In this passage, it's our own hearts that need guarding that need attention. Our enemy then is not, well, it's certainly not non-Christians. I'm afraid that a lot of spiritual warfare talk sounds a whole lot like the people we're warring against are those who are outside the church. No, those are the people God's delivering. (laughs) It doesn't make it about the culture around us. A good vague term, right? The culture, as if we're not living in it. Like everybody else. No. It is Satan and his lies and accusations, and it is our own deceptive hearts that are the places that need to be met in this kind of battle. Many, of, many have kind of pursued spiritual warfare in foolish ways. I mean, sometimes they're like Don Quixote, right? Like jousting with a windmill pointless. Or sometimes, perhaps, meeting some far-flung outpost, but thinking they're on the front line. Let's be clear about this. The enemy is Satan, and it is our own sin. Those are the primary enemies. And the weapons, and this is where it becomes much clearer, are faith, hope, and love. The instruments of warfare in God's real, actual spiritual warfare are faith, hope, and love. 
which I think is very opposite of how we often experience it within the church. Because whenever this kind of language is invoked, what is often invoked is our own merit, our own accomplishments, anxiety about the future, and disdain for those who are outside. But that has nothing to do with the warfare that Jesus is waging. Nothing. The way that God wages warfare is through faith, hope, and love. That is the character of Jesus. That's our calling as a church, is to live in faith, hope, and love. Faith, trusting in God and what Jesus has earned, not on ourselves. Looking back again to the cross and the resurrection and forward to his return, right? That's what it means to live by faith and by hope, meaning that we know that that end is secured and that hope, that end is beautiful and good, that the best really is ahead. And love being, of course, the currency of God's kingdom. Love is in short supply. We are often very short with each other. Happens enough in the church, doesn't it? Uh, Certainly those that are outside the church, we have very little time for. Sometimes it's said, I think it made me especially in Presbyterian circles, right? That telling people the truth, if it's God's truth, is what's loving. Well, yes and no. I mean, the truth is certainly part of it. But to tell the truth, of course, is to hold out what is good and beautiful, to seek clarity. so that the message of the work of Jesus is grace. And the degree to which we muddy those waters is the degree to which we actually fail to tell the truth in love. Faith, hope, and love are at the heart of this. Love is expressed in the cross. And the cross is the thing that defines the way in which we think about spiritual warfare. To put it a little differently, Paul is subverting that whole image. It, yes, it's about Jesus conquering as a king. That's why he uses that metaphor. But he's telling us that it is done so differently than we might imagine. And it is that love of Jesus, the love of God at the cross, that is our most compelling and effective case. For others outside, but also for us who are struggling to stay awake. What we need to be armed with is the cross of Christ so we would know his love, so that the bedrock of our foundation would be clear. Our hope would come into focus and our faith be strengthened. Let's pray. Father, we...
thank you that we are not left to our own devices. We are not left to create peace and security for ourselves. But that is your very gift. Wrought in love on our behalf. And that gift is our hope. And in it we can put our faith, put our trust, so we might not be shaken, so we might not be sleepy, but that we might be wide awake to what lies ahead. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray. Amen.